We're getting started today. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles. The last couple weeks, this is the third and final week, we've been trying to take our mission statement as a church and put some anchors and pillars to it into our life that we could become a church on mission, not just a church with a mission statement or something that we would say to each other as some kind of mantra, but actually something that we would actually live out and be living by. Too many wait on you? It's kind of weird. <laughs> love, love you, bro. I was just waiting for this or something, you know, behind me. So that's what we've been doing. And we've been trying to do that um, because we do desperately want to be a church on mission. We desperately want to be used by God to build his kingdom. And so this mission statement we have, which I would love for you guys to read with me. The mission of North Wake is to reach the lost and equip them to join with us in the process of becoming mature and ministering worshipers of God. So that sounds really good. And for the last couple weeks, we have torn that apart. And we looked at the first part. Those of you that are visual, maybe this will help you a little bit. We looked at the first part of reaching the lost. And we looked at the Great Commission and how Christ commissioned his church to go to the ends of earth to reach the lost, to make disciples. And we talked long about that, and then we talked about the joining and equipping and the, the church being coming together, that the disciples actually took that, were serious about it. And then in Acts 2, we see after Peter preaching the gospel, we see this joining together, this church coming to life as a body, as a fellowship. And then today, we're just going to talk about the last part of our mission statement, what it means to become or live as a mature and ministering worshiper of God. And so we'll come back to that, talk a little bit more about that. But today we're going to start that in our text, 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to read lengthy, lengthy piece of scripture. So if you would grab your Bible or you can follow on the screen if you don't have one with you. We'll be starting in verse 14 and following. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I am implying that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. 
Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one whom informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you have your way with us today? Would you take your word and empowered by your spirit, would you transform us? Would you help us to put to death idolatry and worship you in a way today that honors and pleases and glorifies you alone. Lord, we confess that we are an idol factory. And our heart is drawn to worship many different things. But you made it to worship you alone. And for that we confess our sin to you. We ask for your forgiveness and we ask that you would rain your grace and mercy down upon us once again. That we may learn to live as mature and ministering worshipers of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians is all about idolatry. Chapter 9 Paul has been highlighting the dangers of failing to live a self-controlled Christian life. And he illustrates where that lack of self-control will end you. What the end point of that is. The outcome. And it's idolatry. And he explains why the sin of idolatry is especially hideous in the sight of God. You and I do not connect very quickly to things sacrificed to idols. I bet today you did not think about the meat that you will eat today, whether that was sacrificed to idols or not, and whether that's a good thing. But this was a major problem of the church in Corinth. Do they eat the meat used in such sacrifices when it's resold in the market? Do you go to dinner in a person's home where 
you're probably going to be served such meat. Do you engage and participate in the ceremonies themselves? You see, idolatry was not simply a theoretical issue for the church at Corinth. It was a real life, day-to-day problem. And it is for us today as well. Our idols may be different. The acts of worship more civilized. But idolatry in the church is a real issue. Why? Because the essence of idolatry is misplaced worship. An idol is someone or something that occupies a place in your life that God should fill and only has the right to fill. Idolatry is simply worshiping something other than the one true God. And it is the most insidious and dangerous of sins because it attacks the very character of God. Who God is, who he's proclaimed himself to be, who he's shown himself to be, it is a direct attack on him and him alone. Yet, we find in Romans 1, Paul shows us that since the fall, this is exactly what man has been up to. For although they knew God, Paul says, they did not honor him as God or give, him thanks, or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, from the fall... Man has been trying to create and shape God in his image rather than being shaped to look more like God's image. And we have created him and shaped him in such a way that he would serve us rather than us serve him. When someone or something becomes the object of our worship, it becomes also the object of our service. Since we inevitably serve whatever and whomever we think will give us identity and meaning and value and love and significance and security. This is why in Romans 1.25, later in the passage, Paul connects this worship and service together. And he says, they exchanged the truth about God, man did, for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Worship and service are linked together. The object of our worship always becomes the master of our behavior. What we worship, we serve. The sin of idolatry, whether the age-old worship of sacrifices to pagan deities or the modern worship of ourselves is consequently the same. Worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And that is why in verse 14 Paul says, My beloved, flee from idols. 
flee from idolatry. You see, he looks at the church at Corinth, brothers and sisters that he loves dearly, and he could not bear them being swept away by the worship of false gods and misunderstanding. And so in the same way as an elder at North Wake, can I say with the same sincerity and the same love, my beloved, flee. Flee from idolatry. Ken Sandy in his book, Peacemaker, defines an idol as not simply a statue of wood or stone or metal. It is anything we love and pursue in place of God and can also be referred to as a false God or a functional God. In biblical terms, Sandy says, an idol is something other than God that we set our hearts on, that motivates us, that masters or rules us, or that which we serve. And if you will remember with me, in Galatians 5, idolatry is listed in the sins of the flesh. Right in the middle. And the Lord makes it very clear in Revelation that idolaters will not inherit His kingdom. It is a serious issue. So how do you and I flee from idolatry and live together as mature worshipers of God? How do we do that? What do we do? Well, let's look to our text and see how Paul pulls that apart. In this section, in the first section, verse 14 through 22, Paul points directly to the Lord's Supper as the backdrop to the point that a true worshiper or a mature worshiper, if you will, must understand that idolatry is incompatible with a faith in the worship of Christ. It is incompatible. You cannot worship God in something or something else. And so, if you look through this text, the key to 14 through 22 is a word translated participation. And if you look at verse 16 and verse 18 and verse 20, you can connect the dots. But what is Paul getting at? When he says, is not the cup of blessing and the bread and the bread a participation in the blood and the body of Christ? What is he saying? He is not saying that the cup of blessing can be found anywhere else. He's saying this is unique. For where else can you find such blessing and such forgiveness and such grace? And when you partake of them, what are you doing? You're saying they're more valuable than you understand. You're not just drinking a little juice and breaking off a little bit of bread for a snack in the middle of worship. You are participating in something. That word translated participation is the same word we found in Acts 2 last week when Luke was talking about fellowship. It's the same exact word. 
So when Paul says that we participate with Christ and with the body here at the table, we are fellowshipping with them in a way where a spiritual transaction is happening. There's something more happening here than us just going through their motions and just remembering something. There's something unique, a partnership, a participation in. When we properly approach this table, we are spiritually participating in fellowship with Jesus and with his church. Much more than a simple symbol. It's much more than bread and juice. It's communion with the risen king and his body. It's an amazing thing. It's a place where we remember his death for us, his becoming sin for us, his taking our penalty upon himself, his redeeming us, all of which are represented in his shed blood. We participate in the most intimate and real communion with him and with the others around us that put their faith and trust in the same thing. Paul points to that, and he says, remember that. And then he goes to verse 18, and he says, and also consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. Were they not participants? What does he mean? It means that they participated. They shared in the worship and the benefits of that worship at the altar. There was more than just a physical participation at the altar. Sacrifices were being made to atone for the guilt and sin of the people and to reestablish their fellowship with God. They were sharing in the work of God at the altar. There was something spiritually going on there. And they shared in the benefits as one body. And so he takes these two things pointing to the church and what they did, pointing to Jews and what they did there at the altar. And then he points directly in verses 19 through 21 about what actually takes place in idolatry and what is actually the big point. The big point is not eating and drinking. It's what they are participating in. It's Worship. Can you eat and drink meat, meat and things sacrificed to idols? You're free to. But he points right here and he says, What? Do you understand what you're participating in? These things aren't for the glory of God. These things are for the glory of demons and other things. So be careful. Be careful what you engage in. You see, it doesn't mean that if we use our freedom in any way to partake in the worship of something or unknowingly or we unknowingly were to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols that all of a sudden we would be overwhelmed by possession of a demon and taken over. That's not it. Because he says in verse 19 that idols are nothing. They're nothing. That's not what he's saying. They're wood. They're stone. 
their electronics, their money, their sports, their people. They're nothing. But when we connect ourselves and our worship to them, we become vulnerable to them. We submit to them. We, we fellowship with them in the same way that we are to fellowship with Christ at His table. We deny what we just did here and we worship something else. It forces us to look at how we live and how we exercise our freedom and how we worship. Because in idolatry, we are sacrificing and offering ourselves to demons and not to God. And I don't think any of us, including me, thinks about that on a daily basis enough. You see, it's not the click of a mouse on an image. Is not that click a partaking in a lie? Is it not somehow fulfilling your lustful passions, is that not in somehow sacrificing to the idol of your flesh? Is it not a participation in the demonic? Is not the addiction to others' daily Facebook status and updates, the fascination with their life in comparison to yours, a partaking in coveting? Is that not a sacrifice to the idol of your flesh? Is that not a participation in the demonic? Is not the ritual of Saturday afternoon football at the expense, I'm just messing with myself here, serving your family, is that not a sacrifice to the idol of your flesh? Is it not a participation in the demonic? Is not the endless hours of work for the, the accumulation of stuff and the desire to simply have more money and more power, is that not a sacrifice to the idol of your flesh, is it not a participation in the demonic? You see, it's not the computer. It's not social networking. It's not sports or money or the food you eat because that's nothing. It's not that any of these things are evil in and of themselves, but it is the worship they promote that leads us to idolatry and that was what Paul was fearful of at Corinth John Calvin said that the evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want but that we want it too much you see the things that you want most of them are not evil in just what they are the TV is not evil Football is not evil. The computer is not evil. What is evil is when they are used to worship something other than God. When we want them too much. Because worship, whether Christian or pagan, all worship involves a participation of the worshiper with the object of their worship. So if you worship an idol, you participate in that idol. You participate 
in the demonic and spiritual forces behind that. With every click, with every lustful thought, with every denial of the responsibility God has given you because you earned the right to spend all Saturday on the couch. Whatever it is. Idolatry is an offense to the Lord. He is a jealous God. And we are not stronger than He. So a mature worshiper or a maturing worshiper realizes that his union with Christ makes him a sharer in the blood and the body of his crucified and risen Savior. That God, through the death of his Son, was removing guilt, forgiving sin, and establishing fellowship with those who would believe. And the Lord's Supper we just took part in around this table is where we share in those blessings. But this part of our passage today warns us that we have what we have experienced here at this table, we dare not forfeit or mix with idols throughout our week. We cannot. The most dangerous thing about idolatry is you and I's ability and propensity towards syncretism. That we would exalt Christ high today because it's Sunday morning but on Monday morning we would exalt our idol just as high we might make it through the afternoon till Monday morning and we do that and we we do that at our own detriment and I think sometimes unknowingly we cling to our idol and we cling to Christ. And Paul says, you can't do that. You cannot do that. You see, today we've sat at the Lord's table, and we've communed with Him and His body, and we have professed our singular worship of Christ. By our participation, we have taken in the benefits of His redeeming work, But what will those effects be? What will tomorrow look like? A mature and ministering, a mature worshiper of God flees from idolatry. He flees from idolatry, strives to disentangle himself from idols, and clings to the grace that is his in Christ. That's what a mature worshiper does. He slays idols and clings to grace. That's what he does on a daily basis. And his worship is directly tied to his service. You see, the next part of our passage today is the fact that mature worshipers live as ministering worshipers. They go hand in hand. You can't be a ministering worshiper without being a mature worshiper. A mature worshiper who is striving to worship Christ above all things can then use his freedom for God's glory. 
in becoming a ministering worshiper of God. What does it mean to be a ministering worshiper? He is one we have found who is free in Christ, Galatians 5.1. But his freedom is governed by the love for his neighbor. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. He's free. This ministering worshiper is free, but he's more concerned with what is helpful and builds up rather than what is permissible. Don't be an adolescent worshiper. When you were a teenager, you fought for your rights of what was permissible on all counts, if you're anything like me. At every turn, my dad and I would square off. It would be about, but it's permissible. It's lawful. And he would say, yeah, but it may not be good for you. Or it may not be honoring to God. What about those kind of questions? See, a mature worshiper is a ministering worshiper. And he serves those around him. And he governs his freedom by the love of another. Desiring the spiritual benefit and edification of others is the mark of Christ. Paul would say in Philippians 2, put others' interest above your own, and he connects that directly to Christ. Christ leaving heaven, coming to earth, living a sinless life and dying for your sake. That he put your interest above his own. Therefore, you ought to as well. You are free. You can eat the meat sold in the meat market without any question to your conscience. Christ has set you free. You're free to eat and drink whatever. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But listen, not everything is beneficial. And not every moment is the moment to partake in your freedom because that moment may not be edifying to others. You can't be a mature and ministering worshiper of God and stomp your foot and just say, it's permissible. You can't do that. My liberty, my freedom has to be governed by love. But then at the end of the Toward the end of this section, Paul says something curious. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience if I partake with thankfulness? Why am I denounced because of what that for which I give thanks? My liberty is not to be governed by somebody else's conscience. Now, ultimately, your friend may not have a conscience. Or your friend may be trapped in legalism and that conscience is overbearing and not connected to the gospel. But here's the key. How do you love them well? My conscience is to be governed by the next verse. My conscience, we're going to put all this together, 
is to be governed by the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink, that's really not the point. Whatever you do, it's all for the glory of God. You see, a mature worshiper understands that life is worship. And whatever he or she does either is done for God's glory or it is done for idolatry. The worship of something else other than God. You are a worshiper by nature. That's just who you are. And a ministering worshiper of God, verse 32, strives to give no offense to anyone, but strives to love those inside and outside the church. It says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. The gospel is offensive. Let it be offensive, not you. You are to love your neighbor, to lovingly, compassionately serve Jews and Gentiles and the church. Everybody. That basically, Paul's just saying everybody. And that is what you're to be about. Because a mature, minister, a mature worshiper knows his identity, knows who he is and, how, and why, why he has been saved, not on his own merit, but on the merit of Christ. And that propels him to be a ministering worshiper to others and to put others and allow others. You will not, if you're an idolater, you will not put others above yourself because you are your greatest idol. And until you are crucified with Christ and you no longer live, then you will not be a ministering worshiper. Because you are being worshipped at all times. So, look at the end of verse 33. Why does Paul say all this? What is the point? The point is that they may be saved. That's the point. That's the whole point. Now, back to the mission of Northway. If a mature and ministering worshiper of God is to live this way in order to reach the lost and to save them, do you see the cyclical nature of our mission? Do you see that we reach those who don't know God? We Call them out. Ask them to place their trust in Christ. God moves on them and saves them and joins them to us. And then we disciple and equip and train to be a mature, ministering worshiper of God who then goes and reaches the lost. And then what? Those he reaches, he joins with and equips. And those he joins with and equips, he helps become a mature and ministering worshiper of God. And then they go and they reach others. And then this thing just keeps going. And God somehow, miraculously, adds to their number daily those being saved. It's an amazing thing. Once again, not rocket science. Gospel-centered Evangelism produces gospel-centered discipleship, 
which produces gospel-centered worship, which produces gospel-centered evangelism, which produces God. It's all worship all the time. Moment by moment, breath by breath, day by day, everything you do is worship. The question is, the worship of who? The worship of what? I'm asking you, can we join together and actually do this? Not just talk about it, not just... Can we slay the idolatry that keeps us where we are? The reality is that God has nailed it to a cross. The question is, do you partake or participate in the benefits of that cross in order to release you and free you from your idols that you may worship God, that you may become a mature and ministering worshiper of God who reaches the lost, who helps them join with us in discipleship of them, and then you grow and you mature and you minister and you reach and you equip Is there any other thing better in life? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the redeeming mission, God, that you have to seek and save the lost. To reach them, to redeem them. And then to use them to propel your mission. To fill the earth with mature and ministering worshipers of God. Would you help us this day to identify and put to death the idols of our heart that we may worship you rightly and that we may be used by you we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Will you stand with us?